0: Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of deals, mergers, and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. Thanks for listening, as always. It's been quite a while on this show since we've talked about the idea of M&A PR. For those that aren't familiar, when large companies prepare for deals, many hire outside firms to handle both the media relations and the investor relations uh, that go along with a potential transaction. One of the preeminent firms in this world is called Sard They represent some of the biggest companies on the planet, When they're involved in transformational transactions in recent years, they represented Time Warner Cable when it was acquired first by Comcast, then, of course, later by Charter. They worked on Starwood Hotels, on its contested acquisition by Marriott, uh, and then subsequent deals. They've also worked on Dell's Take Private from a few years ago, a whole number of others. And I'm happy to have the two co-founders with me here today, two members of the Beatles, Paul and George, (laughs) Paul Verbinen and George Sard. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, George, maybe let's start with you. For those that have never heard of Sard Verbinen, what exactly does your firm do?
1: We tend to advise companies in mission-critical situations, uh, M&A being one, uh, usually trying to focus on the effect of companies' announcements on shareholders, on employees, on customers. And uh, we try to help them anticipate what are the concerns going to be and figure out, you know, affirmatively, what are you trying to say to communicate, the, you know, the logic of your deal.
0: And so in general, your interaction is with whom exactly? Who are you reporting to? And then who are you contacting?
1: So we tend to work directly with the companies at the CEO, CFO, general counsel, head of corporate communications levels. We're usually part of an advisory group that would typically include an investment banker, a lawyer, potentially a proxy solicitor, if that's relevant. And we help you know figure out, in, in a case of an announcement, you know how they're going to communicate the transaction, and then what's the outreach plan. And I think one of the things we've learned is that it's critically important in the first news cycle to reach all of your audiences in as close to real time as you can.
0: So we'll talk about how you do that in just a minute. But Paul, let's turn to you. Why don't you tell us sort of the firm's origin story?
2: I was uh, running international for Ogilvy and May, their PR's business, and George was uh, running the... Uh, New York uh, M&A business for uh, a firm called Ogilvy Adams and Reinhardt, Adams and Reinhardt. And uh, so uh, in 92, we decided that uh, we should get together and um, create, if you will, a a smaller boutique that uh, had expertise from big firms. And uh, ultimately, we've grown right now. uh, I guess in 92, I think one of our first deals was Merck Medco. Uh, we got out of the box with a bank uh, that that fed us a lot of our initial deals, and um, that grew very, very quickly. So within about two to three years, we were one of the top firms in the deal space.
0: And how or why did you make the decision to go out on your own? Did you feel like you had enough uh, individual relationships with clients that you could sustain a business, or was there some other calculus to why to go out on your own?
2: I think there was a lot of change at the time. A lot of firms were changing, uh, and there was a an opening for a firm at that time. Uh, some of the firms that had been historically very strong uh, had fallen off, and we saw an, an opening to uh, to get started. And it's uh, it, it's grown very very nicely from there.
0: How do you see the 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 world of M and A PR in terms of its firms today? Since you have just talked about how there was sort of an opening, I, I feel like, from my perspective as a reporter. I have seen some significant change fairly recently in in, in your world. How do you view today's landscape?
2: I think that it's getting tougher and tougher uh, for firms to to break into the space. There's uh, uh, very established relationships. Uh, There are significant barriers to entry in terms of what clients expect of a firm to handle uh, on deals. Increasingly, there's a need for International presence uh, and strong relationships around the globe, because a lot of the M&A is international and global. And there's a lot of expectation in terms of how you communicate to people. It's no longer just via the press release and uh, via Q&A and a conference call or a press conference. Increasingly, there are requirements for video and digital strategies, Washington strategies, and so on around a deal. So it's become more complicated, and I think that's increased the barriers for entry. You know, there have been some changes in the business, um, and I think more and more you'll see, uh, you know, there'll be smaller firms that are around, uh, but more and more the, the companies that uh, come to us are looking for scale, they're looking for breadth, they're looking for 24-7 capability.
0: So, George, where does Saad Verbinin fit today in terms of its reach, its number of offices, its international growth, and where do you see Saad headed in the next 5-10 years?
1: Well, we are now uh, seven offices in New York where we started, as well as uh, Chicago, LA, San Francisco, Houston, London, and most recently Hong Kong. And I think we will continue to grow judiciously. I don't think we feel we need to be in every city in the world. I think we want to have the, you know, the benefit of remaining small and nimble. And I think we still are. We, our senior people are very focused on clients. I think we want to avoid trying to, you know, becoming too large. But this clear, as Paul said, that the, you know, clients are looking for more more than they used to. The barriers to entry are higher. And I think we need to continue to evolve with the business. So, for example, video, digital, those were not important a couple of years ago. Now they're critical.
0: And what exactly do you mean when you say video and digital? You mean a company putting together some sort of video presentation to explain why it's doing a deal?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, one of the things we often do now we can do in-house is you know, the day before if you have a friendly deal – You'll get the two CEOs together to do a tough dress rehearsal of the questions they're going to face, and you also shoot the video of the two of them together, and mainly for employee benefit. And so you want to basically be able to explain in real time with a video to the employees why this is a good thing for them, and, and to introduce them to the other CEO.
0: So take us in the boardroom for a little bit, because as you mentioned earlier, you guys are in the boardroom with CEOs, lawyers, bankers. You know, what in general are the topics that are being discussed, you know, a week or so out and maybe even up to the day before a deal is announced? What are the topics that you're really focusing on in those final few days?
1: I think one of the things you're trying to do is to make sure that you've got consistent answers to questions from both sides of the table. You'd be surprised how many times, you know, a very simple question like, how did this get started? And you have the two CEOs saying different things until they get, you know, until they get organized. Uh, I think it's also, you know, people in the boardroom are always focused on how's our deal going to play? How do you think shareholders will react? What are the toughest questions going to be that we need to prepare for?
0: And so you're doing, it's almost like a mock jury type thing where you're sort of prepping people or or what you would think of as a political candidate before a debate, that type of thing?
1: Yeah, I would say that's that's a fair analogy. And I, and I think I would, I would say further... That if you have the two CEOs together in a prep session the day before you go live, if we do the job the way we should do it, the dress rehearsal should be harder than the real thing. You should not get questions in real life that you hadn't thought about and have a chance to plan. It's obviously not perfect, but we ought to be able to get a pretty high degree of uh, expectation in terms of what you're going to get.
0: Can you guys think of any example over your 20 plus years of doing this where things sort of went off the rails from a PR perspective? Something happened that you weren't expecting in a deal? I'm
1: sure I've repressed those, <laughs> but no. Clearly, I mean, clearly, you can plan for even the best planned exercise. You need to be ready for events breaking. So, for example, one one that I can remember, I've seen a number of times when um, when you're announcing a deal, and then some big global news breaks right as you're announcing your deal, and all of a sudden people are otherwise occupied, and that's something you can't that you can't predict,
2: and it may impact the stock reaction, obviously. And so, if the stock doesn't move properly after a deal that can create some anxiety, obviously, in the boardroom. Sometimes that's uh, because something was not anticipated in terms of a reaction, just from a secular standpoint, or it could be some other announcement or global shock that impacts the deal.
0: What what is your take on sort of the M&A situation this year? Uh, Are you guys busy right now as you sort of look at the pipeline? Do you feel like we'll have a strong end to this year?
2: I think this this year has been a little spotty overall. I think going into the year, people were expecting movement on tax policy and so on that does not look like it's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, And uh, valuations obviously have gone up uh, significantly. So uh, buyers are wary of diving into something that may be too expensive and and may correct uh, at some point. I think people are a little anxious about that. Uh, sellers are um, you know understandably want full value for what they're doing Um, so I think uh, right now people have been somewhat tentative certainly on the buy side obviously with uh, high stock levels you've got a strong currency if you're doing stock for stocks um, you can you know you can move forward on some of those as long as they're well balanced so I think from a uh, from our perspective it's been spotty this year But it seems to be strong. We're having the busiest August we've had in many, many years. Uh, There's a lot going on right now. And I think that people have come to the conclusion that if they're not going to see tax policy, they have to do the deals that they have to do. And they'll work around some of the valuation issues.
1: Yeah, I would just add to that. I think that uh, most companies are struggling with organic growth. And uh, that's been true for a number of years. um, And that uh, there's a real attraction to inorganic growth. Uh, and if there's a deal that you've always wanted to do, there needs to be a compelling reason not to do it. I think a lot of companies are saying, you know, we can't wait any longer. There's a particular deal that just is so essential to our strategy that we're going to go for it. So I think of it as kind of a standoff right now that you've got forces that are sort of going in both directions and there will be deals. I don't think it's going to be, you know, a bumper end of year, but it's certainly there'll be activity
0: a couple of things that are uh, keeping your attention right now are activist situations and and I uh, you know maybe you guys are would it be fair to say that you're getting more and more involved in activist situations as as sort of the years go by or do you feel like uh, maybe some of that has plateaued for you
1: no i i would say the activism uh defense is is still is a big part of our business and it's 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 if anything only growing um you know right now we're in a situation where um usually most proxy contests take place in the spring, because you've got calendar fiscal year companies with annual meetings in the spring. But this year, sort of an anomaly, you've got two big company situations, uh, ADP and Procter & Gamble, that both have meetings in the fall, both with proxy contests going on where it looks as if they'll go all the way to a vote. So I think we'll be busy on those.
2: Yeah, I think that we're seeing uh, overall um, since, you know, over over the 20-something years that we've been doing this, 25 years that the knockdown, down drag-out proxies for the – proxy fights for the most part uh, are being tempered. Uh, boards are smarter. Boards uh, work harder to be their own internal activists, uh, make changes that, that they should be. Uh, and there's a lot more of a tendency to try and negotiate settlements and uh, stand-downs overall. Um, the two George uh, you know, noted are, you know, are unusual in that sense in the, in the current environment – but activism and, and uh, on the defense side has been a, a significant part of our business. If you look at our business these days, you know it's about fifty percent M and A and activist uh, defense, uh, and uh, about fifty about thirty five percent or so in the crisis business, uh, which helps uh, certainly even out the the cyclical nature of the M and A business.
0: Since you mentioned crisis, I want to get your perspective on the the Trump Business Council. Not that you guys are actually giving advice around this, but w- what we're seeing in real time here is CEOs from large companies uh, stepping down off this Trump Business Council. If you were advising the CEOs or giving advice, how do you navigate something like this where there is clearly a conflicting pieces of mind here among the CEOs on this council? On the one hand, they want access to the presidency. On the other hand, perhaps staying on this council – Right now, has has sort of been co opted into a tacit or complicit support of white supremacy. How would you navigate giving advice to someone in this situation?
2: Well, I think the reason that a lot of people got on the council in the first place is the reason that you know many people would want uh, you know to, to be there, regardless of the president. You want to be uh, in the room and have an ability to impact manufacturing policy, economic policy, uh, and so on. And uh, you know, certainly positioned as a, a pro-business administration, I think a lot of people felt that was a good thing to do. Um, you know as, as time has gone on, people are having to make individual judgments as to uh, the impact it has on their various constituents. Uh, they have to do the pro con analysis. Uh, and I think in the current situation, over the last few days, you know, you've had some people uh, you know step off of make, making uh, decisions based on principle. Uh, and I think for the people who remain, it's really going to be a matter of do you think you can have an impact and is that is, is the impact you're going to have a, a, a positive impact from the perspective uh, of your own constituencies and your own company? And can you explain why uh, you, know, you feel that, that uh, having that impact is important to, uh, to them and, and to you if you determine that you're a prop or not? Uh, going to have any impact uh, then you have to make a judgment uh, and I think it's it's going to be particularly tough and obviously a, a couple of uh, very significant credible CEOs have stepped aside recently
0: and, and in fact Trump immediately fired off a tweet um, to to the Merck CEO which which uh, stepped down who stepped down sort of attacking Merck's policies on pricing George what this is real what type of advice have you given CEOs about President Trump potentially tweeting something negative about their company.
1: Well there was a fair amount of that going on about six months ago, um, having nothing to do with the council. And I think our advice to people was to anticipate what the you know, what the concerns could be, could be pricing, could be jobs. Those seem to be the two hot buttons that Trump is most focused on, and make sure you're prepared to make the case to your constituencies directly in terms of your position. So for example, to tie it back to MA, I think one of the things you want to be very sensitive to is not to be you know entering into deals that are so sort of predicated on the logic of uh closing factories in the u s moving jobs to mexico, that sort of thing. you've got to anticipate that that's going to be a you know, gonna be a lightning rod
0: We mentioned proxy contests earlier. Bank of America global head of m and a Steve Baranoff, told me a couple of weeks ago he thinks hostile deals are fading. He just feels like it's harder to get completed deals done today than ever before. That is some of your work, hostile situations. Do you guys sort of agree with this premise?
1: Well, we're involved both in terms of companies planning offensive moves as well as companies concerned about being vulnerable. And on the latter, we're involved in a number of standby defense teams who are sort of ready to to deal with, whether it be an activist, whether it be a strategic acquirer. I would say that it's always been challenging to make hostile succeed. And I think that um, there are also sort of, sort of shades of gray. So if, if I... If I make a a private proposal to you and it gets out publicly, is that a hostile bid? And I think that uh, a lot depends on the reaction of other shareholders, where they think it's a a good deal and a good price. And so I think in in sort of it's it's a tactic to be used gingerly, uh, I, but I don't think it's going away.
0: Part of my job is to deal with not only your firm but uh, your your rival or peer firm, so however you want to say it. I'm curious, what advice do you give executives on how to deal with reporters? Do, do you do you sort of give them specific advice? Do you say, hey, look, if you get a phone call, please refer it to me? Do you say, you know, just say no comment? Do you say, you know, try to ex- work with these people and help them on background if you can?
1: Well, I would say it's it's hard to generalize. I think that, um, you know, some CEOs have their own relationships that they've built over the years and you want to be careful not to get in the way of those. Then you've got CEOs who have never really paid much attention to the press directly, and it's a clean slate. And there, I think one of the things we try to do is to make introductions so you could talk to people you know, in a background get acquainted session first before you're in a live news story. So that would be one of the things we'd be looking to do in terms of who are the people who you should know that you don't.
2: I think there's a lot of pressure these days for uh, journalists to... Break news and sometimes break news before it's fully baked, and I think that you know uh, CEOs and boards and uh, companies and teams are justifiably uh, you know concerned about that. Um, and I think that uh, beyond just the headlines, being in a position to communicate when a deal is done, to communicate in a in a, a broader, more comprehensive way. Uh, you know, the the, uh, nuances of the deal that are important to them is important. So making sure that they have the relationships that ultimately allow them to tell a fuller story through the media than just a quick headline that someone so might be interested in buying so-and-so. You also need to be able to, as we said
1: earlier, you know, to tell your story effectively to the press, but also to go, be able to go directly to your audiences. So for example, to your employees, to your customers, and not to rely on the press to carry your message.
0: To your point about how there's more and more pressure to break news, has your philosophy on how to roll out deals changed as that's changed? In other words, I can imagine that 10 years ago, you may have a system in place where if a deal hasn't leaked or even if it has, when it gets announced, it gets rolled out with a front page story in the Wall Street Journal. That may have been the strategy 10 years ago. I can think that that strategy may, no, may not work anymore because the pressure on breaking news is so high that the amount of times where that sort of orchestrated process actually rolls out into line without a story leaking is just so minimal that it's not even worth having that strategy. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, I think that uh, a lot has changed. And I think the, um, because of the pressure to, to break news and to write sort of more speculative stories earlier in the development of a deal... And the twenty-four hour news cycle should not be underestimated. The fact that you know the morning pa- by the time the morning paper is out, it's sort totally of irrelevant. And so, so you've got a real time situation. And I think our view is that uh, if you can get a deal out cleanly without a leak, that's always preferable. Um, it's increasingly hard to do, but I also think that you know there are times when you have a have a reason why you may want to work with one publication or or outlet. It used to be there are times when. It was a deliberate strategy. There were times when it was defensive. Somebody had gotten a story, was going to run, you know, you know, was going to run it, and what you would find yourself doing is saying, "Can you hold it a day? We'll give you an exclusive." And th- th- that used to be something that, that journalists could agree to. And, you know, today it's not, and so it's not even worth trying.
2: There's definitely a bias, uh, you know, certainly in our firm, and I think across the industry to try and roll things out cleanly and squarely across uh, across all the outlets, um, so that you can orchestrate your media strategy with the communications that go directly to your other other constituencies.
0: It strikes me that there may be times where it is actually advantageous, even from your perspective, to leak a story. I mean, what comes to mind is several years ago, I broke a story that there were talks between Microsoft and Salesforce, Microsoft buying Salesforce. We broke that story. And from my understanding, That deal did not happen because Microsoft shareholders saw the story and then reacted negatively toward Microsoft, and then Microsoft pulled away. It seems to me like that may have worked out in Microsoft's benefit so that they knew what the reaction from shareholders would be. Now, Salesforce has done quite well, so you could actually argue they should have done that deal and it it didn't work out. But generally speaking here, leaking a deal allows companies to get direct access from their shareholders when they wouldn't otherwise be able to, at least in some circumstances. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, I would say that um, you know thinking of a trial balloon is what you're referring to. That's right, and I think that there are times when when that's important to people, sufficiently important to you know to, you know, to run the risk of leaking something, but there's obviously tremendous uh, downside to it as well in terms of how prices move when you set an exchange ratio, Have you set the price yet? And so I mean it certainly does happen, but I would say it's rare.
0: And, and it's typically not a strategy you guys would utilize.
1: It's. I would think of it as a blunt instrument. I think you ought to be able to have a good enough sense of how your shareholders will respond without having to do that.
0: Is there a, a particular deal you can think of or a particular company that you've worked with where now looking back over the many deals you guys have been associated with, you think to yourself, man, that was a wild deal or that was something that I worked on that really sticks out as, in my mind as unusual or fun or maybe not fun, but also sort of just sticks out as your mind as something that... You know, over the 20 plus years you've been doing this, that's something that is, uh, you know, really memorable.
1: Well, the one that I think of, because probably because it's, it's more recent, which you alluded to earlier, was Starwood and Marriott. We work with Starwood. It cl- was a client for many, many years. And uh, here you had a situation where um, you had a friendly deal. Uh, and then uh, Anbang showed up at the last minute and tried to break it up, um, overbid. And then it went through sort of sort of crazy bidding back and forth. And then ultimately, on the last step, the Chinese did, did, did not show up with the money, which was a big surprise to everybody, which I think in a way was a precursor to some of what we've seen out of China more recently.
0: And certainly the fear of what companies, I think, uh, expect could happen if they do a deal with Chinese companies, which I think, I think that deal in particular uh, changed the way many companies and their advisors approach uh, Chinese takeover bids, where it's where there's it was sort of an eye opening experience where it was like, look, we we can't trust that the money's going to be there. So we need to take these bids with sort of a grain of salt that, or maybe a bigger grain of salt even than what they were expecting. Uh, and, and in many ways, that may have limited the amount of larger Chinese transactions into this country we've seen because other than the Chem China Syngenta deal, I, I can't think of another really large Chinese. Deal we've seen since that onbang experience, unless I'm not thinking. Well, I think one. the um,
1: and you've also now got the added complexity of more recent political developments on both sides. You got you got sort of uh, you know sort of the anti Chinese fervor and incipient in the U S. and then you've also got in China recently you know more export controls and sort of sort of concerns about money going offshore.
0: Paul, what sticks out in your mind?
2: I, I always think one of the the most interesting ones uh, that I've worked on over the years was uh, when uh, Warehouser came after Willamette. That was uh, in the '90s, and uh, it was uh, an aggressive two-year fight through two proxy cycles. Uh, you know, and ultimately wound up in uh, a great deal. Uh, you know, for uh, you know that, that uh, Willamette uh, did, and again, it was all hands on deck for effectively two years. Um, so that was uh, was one of the more fascinating ones for me.
0: Are you guys still as motivated to to do this as you were twenty years ago?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I think the environment is changing pretty dramatically, and we've been working hard to to change with it. Um, clients expect more, uh, as I said at the outset, clients uh, expect more capabilities, and so we're building the company uh, in a way that is responsive to what our clients are asking for. Uh, and that's motivating and it's it's exciting and again, the dynamics uh in the industry what what clients look to us for um, you know are are changing they're asking for uh, a lot more than just the press releases and the q and a um, they're asking for insight into particular situations uh you know we have a research firm that is doing a lot in the in the way of uh, you know issues. Uh, development uh, and, and research around particular things that are of interest to companies. Um, we recently started a, a company called uh, Strategic Governance Advisors, uh, which is run by uh, Chris Cernich, uh, who was uh, up until December uh, the, uh, the head of contested M&A and proxy at, at uh, ISS, uh, and, um, these, these are, uh, the kinds of inputs that we're able to give are sort of, I'd say, moving up the value chain, uh, as, uh, as clients look for more and more sophisticated input from all of their advisors. Uh, and I think from our perspective, um, you know, that's, uh, uh that's both a challenge, uh, you know, at the same time, it's fun to, uh, to meet that challenge.
1: Yeah, I would say we're, if anything, revving up, not winding down. And as I think, as Paul said, the, um, the fact that you know we've got a significant role in the boardroom—that's now sort of typical, as opposed to you know once in a while. You know, you know, the role we play, I think, is increasingly important in the overall mix. I mean, there are deals when I feel like what we do is at the periphery, and then there are deals where it's actually central, and it's to me that's it's that that's really exciting.
2: Yeah, the how how the deals get communicated, um, how crises are managed. Um, again, fifteen, twenty, 30, you know, twenty-five years ago, thirty years ago. Um, you know, we were sort of cameo players in the boardroom on various issues. And that's changed dramatically as directors have become uh, more focused on, on a particular situation impacting the company, impacting their reputation as board members, uh, and uh, asking uh, for people in the boardroom to be relevant and to prove that they're relevant. And, uh, you know, again, meeting that challenge is, is fun and energizing.
0: Last question: Since you guys define yourselves as sort of revving up at this stage, do you think about succession at all?
2: Absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's one of our most important things. As everyone will say in a company, it's one of the most important things. We focus on it a lot. Um, we've got uh, probably, I think, the the one of the deepest benches in our industry in terms of uh, the next uh, generation, and frankly, the next generation below. Uh, which is extraordinarily strong, and you know, pound for pound, they've been involved in more situations, more crisis work than uh, than we think uh, you know uh, many of our rivals can offer. But uh, you know, we're looking for people who can not only do the business but also have a vision about how to manage the business, grow it, uh, want to be engaged, uh, and and have the mindset. Frankly, uh, the same kind of mindset that lends itself to being successful in the deal world. Which, frankly, is a twenty-four-seven environment. Things don't happen at you know Monday at nine thirty and finish at Friday at four o'clock. You have to have that same mindset in the crisis business too. And so, it takes a certain kind of person that both enjoys doing that, enjoys you know running to the ramparts, but also can manage the people. Uh, and as you build a firm and uh, attract the kind of people that like to do this, uh, you have to. You know, provide an environment that that energizes and motivates them, and so we've uh, we recently uh, named a chief operating officer, a chief administrative officer, uh, and um, we have a whole raft of people that run various committees and so on, and are getting management experience in that process.
0: And if you do think about succession, how do you do that exactly? Like, do you have a working, living will in essence? Um, not so
2: much. There are clearly people who, you know, in the firm who are obviously, uh, you know, sort of the natural leaders, uh, in, in our world, the people that emerge as, as the leaders are the people who pick up the ball and run with the ball. And you can see, uh, that, uh, other people, uh, respect them, uh, as leaders and so on. So the, the, I think in our own minds, we have ideas as to who the, the next generation of leadership is. Um, but I, I uh, Is that
0: know. something that you would tell an employee, and that's in, in other words, when you guys sort of don't have an expiration date on yourself, how do you convince people to stick around?
2: I think that most of the people that uh, see themselves uh, the, I think the people that we see as future leaders are aware that we see them as future leaders. Um, and you know, as I said we're always we're we're careful to say both both George and I have uh, a view that we want to do this for some uh, some time more. Um, and we want to make sure that the next generation is uh, motivated and ready to take over at the right time and indeed they are picking up more and more responsibility. That said, uh, we think we have a good run ahead of ourselves and are having fun with it so I don't think we see much change there but we do see you know a great group of, of uh, younger people coming up and um, and picking up the ball and running with it as I said
1: we really want to uh, create a firm that outlives us you know most of these firms don't succeed in doing that, and it's, we've always seen that as a challenge to create an institution that will outlive us, and that's our goal.
0: George Sard and Paul Verbinen, the namesakes of Sard Verbinen, running one of the most influential m PR firms in the world, really. Uh, thank you guys both for joining me.
1: Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.
0: That's it for this episode of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed that. Remember, you can catch all of our episodes on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, or on Apple Podcasts. And please rate and review the show if you're on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us. Also, if you have an idea for a future episode of the show, please email me at asherman6 at bloomberg.net and also follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. See you next week.